Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Unlike the song of a similar title... The Motel California isn't a lovely place. A fact that podcaster Jimmy Doubts learns the hard way when he's framed for the murder of an outlaw country artist hell-bent on distancing himself from his past. Jimmy's podcasting partner, Farrah Graham, faces her own struggles as a patent troll looks to put an end to their uncorking murder podcast unless some outrageous demands can be met. The stakes couldn't be higher as Jimmy races against the clock to prove his innocence, and Farrah fights for their future in Michael Carlin's new comedic mystery, Motel, California. Identical twin detectives who relentlessly argue about glam rock. A sociopathic cowboy with an axe to grind. An adult film actress running away from the biz. And a mob boss addicted to home improvement television round out the colorful cast of Motel, California. A tale that could only be told in the backdrop of a city as colorful as L.A. Readers who appreciate the vibrant characters of Carl Hyacin, the wit of Jonathan Tropper, and the humor of both should check into Motel California, available wherever books are sold online. You can learn more about Motel California and all of Michael Carlin's other novels at michaelcarlinauthor.com. And now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Uncorking Story Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited, and yes, excited is the right word, excited to share with you my conversation with Amazon number one international best-selling author, Lori Handlers, author of Sex and Happiness, The Tantric Laws of Intimacy. Through her company, Butterfly Workshops, she offers sexual health and awareness courses, plus leadership courses for corporations and individuals throughout the world. Now, for over a decade, she's hosted the weekly radio show Sex and Happiness, where she discusses all topics about, you guessed it, sexy time. She has produced and starred in two independent films, Beyond Dinner and Tantric Tourists. Her current focus is on sexual ecstasy at any age and is currently writing a book called The Magic and Mastery of Sex and Happiness After 60. Now, I just want to pause here for a second and reflect on something. I interview people for a living. And I find that I love interviewing people who have an expertise in fields where I have really next to no experience. And it's sad because oftentimes when I lose a project and when a client calls me and says, hey, we're not going to award you a project, it's, it's because I didn't have enough experience in their category. Or sometimes they call and tell me that, you know, somebody on the team wanted to go with somebody who they've used in the past. And I get it. It's all very rational. 
But the fact of the matter is, when they do that, and if that's the real reason why they're not hiring me, um, they're doing themselves a disservice. Because when I go into a situation where I know next to nothing, my curiosity takes over. And I probe in areas that other people might not dive into. Additionally, my interviewee might sense that. They might sense my naivete and then put on the hat of teacher and give me more detailed explanations of whatever subject matter they're an expert in. So in short, it leads to a really fluid and insightful interview. And I think you'll discover that to be the case with my conversation with Lori. So look, I know this topic isn't one that, you know, we're really supposed to be talking about in polite company. And and you might be wondering, you know, hey, Mike, won't you be embarrassed if your 80 plus year old parents hear you carrying on about this topic? Well, yeah, maybe. But consider this. After Lori's mother passed away, her father became her student. So let that sink in for a second. She taught her father everything she knew about sex and intimacy. So I think that's pretty interesting. Um, But one thing I want to impart on you before I, I actually play the interview with Lori is that, you know, Tantra isn't just about sex. It's actually more than that. So in this conversation, you're going to hear why Lori believes we all have to change and adapt throughout life and why it's important to come to peace with our own emotional and physical needs before we can fully do so with another. We're also going to hear about, you know, why it's so damn hard for for so many men and women to have an honest and open conversation about what they want in the bedroom. And I think Lori's uh, insight there is really interesting. You're also going to hear advice on um, what she would say to young couples on how to have a fulfilling sex life well into their golden years, as well as how to talk to one's children about sex in a way that's open, honest, and will set them up for emotional and physical relationships that are, you know, fulfilling. So I hope you will listen to this entire interview with Lori because it comes to a nice climax towards the end. And for more information on Lori, visit her website at www.butterflyworkshops.com. Or you know what? Google the name Lori Handlers and a lot of things are going to pop up. So now, without further ado, my conversation with Lori Handlers. I mean, you're talking to somebody who actually knows nothing about the topic. Um, I might have a cursory understanding. Perfect. So I'm here to learn from you. So... You know, the book, of course, is um, an international bestseller, Sex and Happiness, The Tantric Laws of Intimacy. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, what is, this is going to sound like just a, a, a general opener question, but what is Tantra all about? There's a lot of interpretation about it. There's like old school tantrics who believe in it almost like a religion. Uh, it's a certain... Uh, consciousness, etc. And then there's something called neo-tantra. And I guess we could put me more in that category, what I know, but I kind of know I've both feet, I've one foot in one camp and one foot in the other. So I'll just explain to you what I know of it, because what I know right here is what's important in this interview. But there are, there's a lot of different camps and there's a lot of different ways to look at it. So I'll just say my teacher taught me that the definition of Tantra meant expansion through awareness. So that means like as we become more aware, our consciousness expands and it becomes able to encompass everything. Uh, I don't like that definition. I'll get to my definition in a moment, but I'm just going to explain that because it sounds so woo-woo. So what I mean by that is we 
as we grow up, at least in Western culture, we look at things as polar, right and wrong, black and white, dark and light, uh, good and bad, all these things, you know, sin on one side and evil, and then, you know, righteousness on the other side, all these polarities. And that is, those are contrived ways of thinking. Those are like man-made ways of thinking. And when our consciousness expands big enough to encompass it all, then there is no polarity. There's just, this is what's so. Today, I feel anger. It isn't right or wrong. It's just a feeling that I have. And I'm big enough because my consciousness is big enough to embrace that anger. And when I embrace it, it doesn't own me. It doesn't have me. I'm not acting out because of it. It's just a thing. I use that because anger was my main emotion at some point. Yeah. So I don't know. You know, I'm going to give you another translation because I think it can be made more simple for people to understand. And the way I look at Tantra is that it's transformation through pleasure. So I don't know if you've done any transformational work like the Landmark Forum or anything else that's out there in the world of transformation. I was a big form person. I was also an est person. So I did all those things. And I was really into transformation. I wanted to like fix and heal the world. And when I found Tantra, I found a way to fix and heal my own body and all the baggage that I was carrying. I found yeah, sorry. I found it after my I found it after those transformational experiences. So it was great. I now knew how to like get my head screwed on right. Now I knew how to back it up in my whole person, my whole being, my whole body. Is that the starting point? I mean, w- within oneself, you know, versus you know, because some people might think and, and and you know, look, I'm a I'm a blank slate with this stuff. Um, Good. You know, I'm I'm it's a tabula rasa. You know, consider me the John Locke of this interview, but. Um, some people might think, and this was certainly my, my understanding, um, of Tantra comes from, you know, a comment that Sting makes, right. About, you know, his, his. Lasting for that, 10 hours, making yeah, yeah. opportunity. And to me, that's like, uh, that's two people kind of coming together, but is, is the starting point one person is the starting point, the self? Yes. The starting point is the self. And it's really not that much to do about sex. So it's kind of astounding when I say this to people. This is kind of an old conversation for me because when I first started teaching Tantra, no one heard of it. So it was like I really had to explain it. So I love that you're that you and I are on here together because I can explain it to you from like that old school perspective, which is to say sex is the portal like sexual energy is really what we're getting at here and so to access sexual energy we have to build a sexual charge in our own body so basically i teach people how to use what's called the chakras the chakras are the major energy centers in the body starting with where you sit your base chakra is where your anus is your tailbone where you're sitting on your spine and that's that area in your body has to do with survival, safety, family of origin, decade. You and I, a mo- few moments before we started recording, we're talking about Woodstock. So I said to you, you don't like really look like a, you were the age of a hippie. <laughs> I know because I was a hippie. So that decade you were born in, the conversations going on at that time of the world, like that, like when I was born and when I was a hippie, when I was first having sex, there was no AIDS. 
I'm pretty sure when you were born, there was, and that was a scary thing. Like that was like the fear of God instilled in everybody. Like you could get AIDS. So that all, all those conversations live in your root. Your next chakra up is your sex and your sex has to do with pleasure and pain and the memories thereof. And most people remember more pain than they remember pleasure. So if I ask people, if you, how many D's did you get on your report card or F's? They know that teacher. They know that F. They know that D on their report card. I say, how many A's did you get? They can't remember that. That right. doesn't make as memorable a take in the sex area. So when we open up those two areas, we got Pandora's box. We got like all these th- these traumas, all these conversations, all this going along with things that our parents wanted us to do. And, and then the report cards and the humiliations, all that is stored in those two pleasure centers what do we do with that we move the energy so we access sexual energy by waking up those parts of the body and then we move that energy throughout the whole body so it comes to the midsection which is the third chakra comes to the heart comes through the throat it comes through the third eye it comes through the top of the head and when we connect all of that we're like a whole and it's hard to hold on to anything that's detrimental. Like we have access to release trauma without reliving it. We have access to release our parents, you know, without going to therapy. <laughs> we have access to release the one bad thing that happened when you got that F and the whole time now you think you're inadequate because that one teacher gave you the F. You can release that and actually have pleasure in your body. Well, I'll tell you what, my first F was uh, in first grade. The subject was handwriting. Oh, no. Now, of course, the earner of the F is yours truly, but the giver of the F, Sister Peter Marie from, you know, St. Gregory School in Plantation, Florida. I'll never forget that woman. She had a beard thicker than mine. Oh. See, I told you, like, we remember that stuff, and that stuff. So here's, here's the converse of what I just said. You're making love. You've, you have a partner, you're into it, you're into this person and you want to make love to this person and you don't know, but I do, that that memory of sister, sister Mary, whatever, is, is in your sex. It's, it's buried in the cellular memory of your sex. And while you're making love and feeling good, there's also this niggling thing on the side that you don't know of that holds you back. And it's an F Yeah, that was in handwriting in first grade on your report card. And that doesn't belong in your sex act. That doesn't belong in your lovemaking, but it's there. Yeah. Sorry. It's to you to get it out of there or it's to me to help you get it out of there. I was going to say, how can I get sister Peter Marie out of my bedroom? (laughs) She has no place in there. You have to perform an exorcism. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost like a reverse exorcism. That's exactly right. You have to get the church out of your, out of your root and out of your sex and also out of your third chakra, which has to do with your feelings and power. So you have to become empowered and let go of all those things that, that influenced you when you were too little to have a say. And that all affects our pleasure. Now, sex isn't the only pleasure, but sex is the access to living a complete life and a full life that's full of pleasure with choice, sovereignty, boundaries, consent, 
going, finding the yes to sex and the healthy uh, way to it and then igniting all of these spinning chakras allows you to have an amazing experience in life, which is filled with pleasure. And that, I mean, that all starts with, with working you. on oneself. That starts you. with working on That's right. You, not your partner, not fixing your partner, not bringing your partner into the lab. Your partner might be there, but in the first classes, in the beginning classes, no matter, I teach my own, at my own school, and then I also teach for an international school. And in both places, the beginner's course, my beginner's course at Butterfly Workshops is one day. And it's all about your relationship to you. And you never even connect with your partner till kind of the end, if you have a partner or with someone else, like a stranger towards the end where you just do some breathing together. So that would be the beginner's. In the week-long course, which I teach from the International School for Temple Arts, it's a week-long course, and it's all about your relationship to self, the personal, and and expressing the emotions, getting them out, the ones that are stored that you may or may not know about, reparenting yourself so that you actually have a healthy relationship to the masculine and feminine inside that has nothing to do with the two parents that you got you know, or whoever were your, your, your authority figures. So it's a lot of it is very psychological, very emotional. And some of it is even shamanic. It's like taking a, a ritual and making it into having an influence on you that changes everything. Now with, I mean, so starting with the self and, and I mean, you know, you know, for me, like, obviously it would be great if, if both, um, you know, both, you know, parts of the couple were involved in something like this, Yes, you know, working on themselves and then working together as a couple, but I'm sure, uh, or it'd be my assumption anyway, that, you know, some, sometimes couples may not be on the same page. You know, there, there could be one couple who's actually all over this and wants to work on themselves and, and the relationship and the physicality and, and communication. And the other person might just be fine with the way things are. How does one overcome that? That's a great question. I don't have the answer to that. <laughs> Only they do. I don't know. You know, people used to ask me that when I worked for Landmark. They used to say, you know, if, my, if we take the forum, if I take the forum and my partner doesn't take it, will we stay together? And I would just go, I don't know. And the same thing I say in Tantra, you know, if I can tell you all about sex and happiness and how they go together, I can't imagine somebody being all that happy who doesn't have a healthy sex life. I just can't imagine it. They've, sublimated it or they've suppressed it or whatever they've done to make themselves happy without it. But to me, it's part of the mechanism called the human being. So if one partner wants to come to courses and the other partner doesn't, at first, the partner who doesn't come will benefit because the partner who comes to class will come home with some new great stuff. However, if over long term they don't want to study this together, I can't say what will happen. It's a, it's an individual it's an individual choice. I know from I can only speak for myself. I vet my partners very seriously. 
they have to have done this and this and this and this. They have to have been involved in transformation for a while because I who I don't like talking to myself. <laughs> like I wanted to, you know, I want to communicate with a partner who's on the same page as me. And that's not easy to find, but I have a partner now who is on the same page. Is is are we at a time in in society right now where we're kind of couples and, and, and even individuals need this more than ever? And and I, I only ask that because I, I just think about you know, the way technology has crept into our lives and most of our communication these days, and again, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but most of my communication, even with my own wife, it's all electronic. It's quick text messages. You know, it's, um, you know, uh, especially when I'm traveling, cause I do travel quite a bit for business. You know, we're not talking, it's not like full on conversations. It's really just, you know, very functional back and forth. Um, you know, are we, are we at a point where, where because of the prevalence of technology and because, you know, and again, it's an assumption on my part, but people aren't spending as much time physically together where um, we're like Tantra and working on oneself and, and working to kind of together as a couple is, is even more important than it was maybe even 10 or 15 years ago? I could, I mean, I could take a guess at this and just say that I find it really important to have one-on-one connection. I find it really important to hear someone's voice. I like texting. I like sexting. I like the internet. I love sending somebody an involved email when I have a lot of things I need to talk to them about, setting up the agenda, whatever. But I think back in the 80s, there was this term high touch, high tech, high touch, High tech was coming in and they were saying that there needed to be high touch as well because people were going to lose human connection. I don't know. I would just say probably for my generation, I don't even like to identify with the generation, but for my generation, we still pretty much have high touch. I think in young people who just have earbuds in their ears all the time and they're like on their device I think it's really problematic. And they're also learning about sex from porn. And that's not, that's not super warm and fuzzy and high touch. That's like slamming, bamming, boom. So I can see that there are some downsides to the technology. I would say to you personally that you should find every moment that you can to be in connection with your partner. Yeah, and, and maybe it's unfair unfair for me to actually blame the technology, but it's really how we choose to use the technology. You know, are we are we trying to be kind of immersive with it? And like you said, you know, things like you know, sexting, long drawn out emails, kind of choosing to use it in a certain way versus the, you know, just kind of the quick back and forth, get this conversation yeah. over as land quickly it, as land possible. Landed safely. See you in five days. <laughs> You know, know, listen, I travel a lot, so I understand that. But to me, that's why we have Zoom. That's why we have Skype. That's why we have FaceTime. That's why we have some of these things so that we can actually see each other and uh, in lieu of being able to touch one another. Yeah, you mentioned something interestingly just a few minutes ago about, you know, porn and kids kind of learning about sex these days on porn. And, you know, of course, porn has always been around. But, you know, back, you know, you invoke the, the 80s, you know, back in the yeah. 80s, 
things were different. It was harder to get. You certainly didn't have access to it in your pocket. Um, you know, dare I say some of it was, was trying to be story driven. And now it, it seems like it's all, you know, quick, quick scenes. You know, there was, there was not a lot of, um, I don't know, maybe not a lot of art to it, but what is the danger of, you know, for young people these days, you know, being exposed to pornography like that at such an early age? Um, they don't have the maturity to actually file it. So I, what I mean by that is they don't have a file folder that catches it properly. There, t- It takes some maturity. It takes some emotional and and I'll dare say spiritual development to know how to really couch sexuality in a proper place and know that it's it's a sacred act. It's a I since I've been tantric, like I see my body in a way that I never saw it before. That like my body's a temple. I choose what goes in and what stays out. I respect it and regard it in a certain way that brings me the the utmost pleasure and connection and presence and learning from a gif, you know, (laughs) on Twitter or from a porn site, which is geared to like get the, get it done within three minutes is not how two human beings need to come together. They need to come together in real time with some sensitivity, et cetera. So I think the kids also, they're learning strange things. They're learning to do things that aren't um, like there's, I don't can't remember the woman's name, but there's a woman who does a Ted talk about, she's a much older woman. And she says she, she, she has sex with like 20 somethings and she tells them, no, you cannot ejaculate on my face. You know, like, <laughs> like that seems to be the theme Every last shot in porn is that. Right. And I don't know too many people who really enjoy that. I got to say, that's not something that I teach in my classes. I'm not making it wrong or putting it down. I don't, between two consenting adults, I kind of don't care what they do. And I don't see anything like tremendously uh, respectful or um, honoring. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> about a cum shot on the face. Like it's just not, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it kind of, it kind of puts up this um, image of, you know, adult sexuality that is not necessarily accurate. Right. Their, I'm sure their parents aren't doing that. I'm sure their parents are not doing that in their bedroom. I'm sure that they're, you know, just somebody a decade or two older than them is not doing that. That's just not, you know, that's just the thing. That's like porn driven. And that's okay. It's just not where that's not educational. That's entertainment. Right. That's like, you know, when we saw before uh before we went to the moon, you know, we had we had space movies, we had the 2001 Space Odyssey. And then we had all these things. And even still, there are still Trekkies, people who are still addicted to Star Trek and whatever. Every, you know, not that many people have been in a spaceship. It's a fantasy. It's entertainment. You're not heartbroken that you're doing what you're doing and you're not Captain Kirk. You know, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm just saying, you know, there's entertainment and then there's education and it's they're different. 
they don't they don't always intersect right when you know when just kind of coming back to to tantra um you know of course starting by working on oneself um but then let's say when, when the couples come together i mean do do you find that um men and women initially have a hard time talking about sexual intimacy and talking about kind of and communicating what they want from each other. Totally. Um, where, where does that come from? I mean, cause you know, to me, I, think, I mean, look, I'm, I'm guilty of it too. Sister Mary, whatever her name was. <laughs> Sister Mary. I don't think she knew much about sexual intimacy. I'm just going to throw that out right there, but no, because you think about it, you're sharing yourself with somebody. I mean, you're you're having children together. And, you know, I know people who are together 20 years. And when you talk about, um, when, when they try and talk about, you know, sex or what they want, sometimes it's viewed as an attack on the other when it's not, of course, not meant to be. So where where does the the friction or the tension come from in, in when people are trying to open up and, and talk about this stuff? Okay. Number one. The Talk Your Parents Never Gave You is the title of a book that my partner's writing because most parents don't talk about it correctly with their children. So we'll start with number one. There is no talk. They give you a book. They show you a few pictures. You get it also in junior high or high school, and then that's it. So you know the names of the physical parts, and you know what they do, but that's it. That's one. Two, there's a definite split between the mind and body. The mind is the valued thing. The body is the sin, depending upon how you were brought up and in which particular religious group or ethnic group that you were brought up in. So no one talks about anything really below the waist. You're supposed to, and it's and there's conflicts because you're supposed to be uh, you save yourself till you meet the one or whatever. That's some of the messages. And then there's also you know to be popular in high school you have to do all these things behind under the bleachers or whatever. So <laughs> so there's there's all this split about it with no talking. Now then then there's the classic thing which uh, girls aren't supposed to like sex or want sex or be sexually assertive and boys are supposed to know everything and as far as i know boys don't talk about any of that stuff they don't know anything they know nothing they know less than the girls know because girls talk and then they're then so they come together and they don't no one knows how to talk about there's no straight adult conversation about sex like what do you like what do you want to try what might you like have you ever done anything like for fear of being labeled or whatever there's just this lack of communication so it goes on it carries on and then if a woman in relationship with a man tries to say honey a little to the left a little less pressure a little more uh lighter touch a little this the man takes that personally like he was supposed to know like you everyone's pulling it out of or like rabbits out of their sleeves they're trying to do magic tricks when it comes to sexual communication there isn't any good stuff Unless they read a book like mine, Sex and Happiness, um, unless they go to a class, uh, unless one of them says, you know, oh, well, my partner is involved in doing these surveys now where he has a sexual survey between women and men. And he'll give the survey to a couple and that he'll just say, you know, what was your la- when was your last 10 experience? 
number 10. And, you know, the woman will say almost never, maybe two times in my life. And the man will go every time. It's a nine. It's a 10. It's, it's wonderful. Who, who, where's that divide there? And women will never say, I mean, unless they're ready to divorce you, they probably won't say because they don't, they, they, they don't, they want to keep the peace. And we're talking about hetero couples here. Now. Yeah, yeah. I'm not talking about, you know, gender bending and um, other, you know, other sexual preferences. We're pretty much talking about straight couples. Also, a lot of people these days are not into coupledom. They're not into, they're not so into monogamy as they were. Now people are into open relationships and polyamory. And so now there's a few different people that you have to have the conversation with <laughs> right? and tell the truth. A lot of times people in the survey have said that uh, they broke up with someone because the sex was bad, but they didn't tell them. So we have a, we have a, I mean, I'm not going to call it a crisis, but I'm going to say that it's, uh, it's really important. It's just as important as people's value about money and people's value about spirituality and people's value about what kind of home they should live in. Their sex life is really like one of the underpinnings of of relating. And, you know, it's you mentioned um you kind of like women not not supposed to talk about it, or you know they're not supposed to kind of desire it or want it, right? You know, so so that aspect of of socialization, you know, how much damage does that do to relationships? Well, there's a person always keeping a secret. I'll just liken it to that. Of course, women weren't supposed to like sex until MTV. When MTV came, <laughs> you can blame Madonna for for uh, yeah, Madonna awakening and, <laughs> and Beyonce and you know like then everybody was like moving you know rocking their pelvis which which you know Elvis was blamed back in the day for doing right. that. They took him off national TV for shaking his pelvis. Um, I think that any secret that's in the space between me and another is detrimental to our relating. Anything I don't tell you and that I don't find a way to tell you, I, and I'm holding to, to, I'm keeping that card up my sleeve is against us. There's a, cause it's always in the space between us and you just don't know, but I'm always carrying a secret. You know, and vice versa. If you're, listen, if someone's having an affair and, you know, the other person says, I honestly didn't know. I don't believe that. I think people always know energetically. I think it's just simply that they choose to not deal with it. And therefore it's got a life of its own. The thing, the secret has a life of its own. Where where did you come up with the name um, Butterfly? Because that's kind of in your that's in your branding, right? Butterfly workshops. Yeah. What was the genesis? I wear a butterfly ring. I don't have any tattoos, but I guess if I had one, I'd have a butterfly. Um, I so here's the thing. I was naming my business in 1998, 1999, somewhere around there, and uh, 
I, a friend of mine told me to go to this psychic and find out from her what she thought I should name my business. I, that was like so bizarre to me, but I said, okay, whatever, I'll, I'll talk to her. And she told me to name my business Eagle, Eagle Workshops. And I said, that's like the bald eagle and American pie. I'm not naming my business that. My business is about sensuality and education and sexuality and and transformation. So I so I went to the Smithsonian. I lived in Washington then. I went to the Smithsonian Expert of Butterflies and I spent the whole day with him as people were running around with butterfly nets and everything. I used to do that as a kid, but I didn't do that that day. I just sat there waiting for him. And he said to me, "What?" you know? I said, "I've been waiting all day to ask you this question." Can caterpillars change their mind? Do they have to turn into butterflies? And he said, they can't change their mind. It's in their DNA. They have to, their caterpillar cells have to go into the chrysalis and die. And then these other cells eat the cells. We would call them cancer cells or whatever. These other cells eat those cells and then change form and emerge from the chrysalis as a butterfly, they have to do it. They can't avoid it. There's no choice in the matter. It's in the DNA. And I said, great, that's all I wanted to know. And then he was like, okay. <laughs> and what I, I named my company Butterfly Workshops because human beings don't go into a, into a chrysalis and a pupa. They don't think that they have to change. Human beings think they can resist change. And that is so false. So I named it Butterfly Workshops as this Chinese symbol of transformation and saying that human beings have to transform. They have to. They have to keep up with the changes. They have to keep up with technology and they have to keep up with the shifts in their bodies, all kinds of things that they try to resist. They like to think of the good old days, play old rock and roll, you know, go back to the classic. And it's, it, they're kidding themselves. They can't stay the same. Well, also, I mean, the, 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 as you as you talk about that, my mind goes to you know, kind of how, you know, how we were talking before about how you know we were socialized, and and um, one of the issues with kind of communicating with other people about you know things around sex is, you know, that we're, it's some it's taboo. It's it's something that we're not supposed to really talk about, or depending on what our gender role is, we we are encouraged not to. But for for one to really feel kind of maybe alive, they need to almost change within themselves and change that way of thinking. You know, put that chrysalis around themselves and then kind of reemerge anew. Yes, I vote for that. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's the powers that beat, listen, whoever concocted this whole notion, I think it was the, I like blaming the Romans. So I'm going to blame the Romans here. Um, when the Roman Catholic church started, I think it was very deliberate on the part of whoever was in power then to say, let's, we can't control people who are sexually free. We're going to have to get them where we, have, where we can get them, like, like getting people by the balls, so to speak. So we're going to have to get them. And how we get them is to make them ashamed and afraid of their own power. The seat of our power is in the lower belly, right, where all those things intersect. 
that's where we feel power. When that man, when, uh, was it John Blythe? I can't remember who wrote power, fire in the belly. Um, that fire, what, what do you think that fire is? That fire is sexual energy. That fire is ignites our creativity. Listen, Napoleon Hill, chapter 11, Think and Grow Rich. He wrote about it. He wrote about creation, creating things, creating wealth, creating ideas that produce wealth. Where do these, where does it get created? In creation, the same way, the same place babies get created. What a miracle. There's so much power there. And somewhere in that Roman empire, they knew if we get these people to be scared of their sex, we got them. We can rule them forever. We can milk them for all they're worth. We can whatever. So I'm not saying they were the only ones to do it. Like societies took off. Cultures took off. Governments took off. Other religions followed suit. As long as we keep this, the divide at the neck, I only value what I can think. My mind is the only thing that's worth it here. And the rest of the body is just this thing that we put clothes on. We decorate it. Then we, then we can be had. And when, when people study sacred sexuality and they, be, and they really like feel themselves, they feel that breath surging through and they feel that energy like igniting everything, all of a sudden nothing can control them. That's kind of scary a little bit because a lot of people are like, then what? <laughs> but it's, diff- it's just, it's different. It's a different paradigm. Plus all those right and wrong things, the stuff I talked about really early in the show that like right and wrong, good and bad, this and that, all those things get erased. They go away. And so when they go away, like we can live really peaceful lives. We don't have shame. We don't have guilt. We don't have like the higher power becomes right here. Like where's my heart at? What's my gut telling me? And does it align with what my mind is saying? And then we like, we live righteous lives. We don't need to be, um, punished we don't need to be corralled we don't need to be orchestrated like we or governed we actually live very righteous lives what what year did your book uh sex and happiness the tantric laws of intimacy come out what what year was it published it was published in 2006 that was the first edition it's in its third edition now and it's in kindle it became uh amazon international bestseller i don't know a couple of years, a couple of three years ago. Um, so maybe 2014, it became an international bestseller in the Kindle version. Um, yeah, so it's been around for a while. Lots of people have read it. I, it does. It's not distributed widely. I mean, it's distributed by me and it's distributed by Amazon. Yeah. Um, but people tell me that they get so much out of it. It's not. It's really not a book all about Tantra. It's a book about my life as it changed. Learning and developing all the things that I teach. Where, I mean, to, to, just to that point, kind of your life and, and you, you know, how you've changed. You mentioned that you were from a New Yorker. Is, mm-hmm. is that where you were born and raised in, in New York? Yes, I was born and raised in, well, I was born in Brooklyn. I was raised on Long Island. Oceanside, mm-hmm. and 
I went and then I left when I went to college. I went to college in Washington, D.C. and graduate school there. And then I I stuck around D.C. for a while. I lived in D.C. a total of 25 years. Yeah, I'm, I'm always curious what, you know, what people who have turned out, you know, to be authors and experts in a certain area. Mm. Um, I'm always curious what they wanted to be when they were little <laughs> kids. Like, so when, when, when Lori, you know, from Oceanside, um, you know, in Long Island was, you know, younger. Yeah. You know, did, you probably didn't dream of being, you know, a, a tantric expert. No. Um, but what, <laughs> what was the dream back then? Um, you know... I don't exactly know. What I can say is this. I've always been a teacher. I was like the uh, Lucy and the Peanuts cartoon. Like she always hangs out a shingle and says that she's giving advice or teaching something. So I was always, I was always teaching something. I was teaching kids when I was like five, I was teaching kids how to sing and I didn't really know how to sing, but I was, you know, charging nickels or something in Brooklyn. Um, So I've always known that I was a teacher and I didn't have the subject. My seventh grade guidance counselor did not tell my parents that I was going to become an expert in sexuality. <laughs> what would they have thought at the time? What would they have thought at the time? Oh, I, my mother would have just died of embarrassment, I think. My father was became my student later on. So after my mother died, my father didn't know how to reenter the dating world. He just was like, what do I do if I want to have sex? I'm asking my daughter, isn't this weird? But I have to. And so I said, yeah, I'm glad you're asking me because I think, you know, sometimes you're idiotic about things and it's a whole new world out there. There are diseases you never, that never were there when you married. There's when you were first having sex, you, you need to, you're dating women who are just about a year or two older than me and they could get pregnant. And my father's like, no. And I said, yeah, you need to come to class. So he became a tantric student. Is that, I mean, I mean, how surreal is that to, to almost reverse the, you know, parent-child relationship <laughs> where you're teaching your father? Uh, because chances are no one, nobody ever taught him, right? I mean, nobody, you know, I'm just doing yeah. the math. You know, not a lot of open communication today, probably a lot less back then. Um, how surreal of an experience is that? And, and what's, what's the other classmate interaction like when you tell them, oh, yeah, that's my dad? Well, they, people were okay with it. They thought it was really cool. You know, I had put my father through everything else. You know, he had, already, he had done the forum and he had done different workshops and stuff. He was very open and wanting to learn a lot of things. He turned me on to a lot of things and I turned him on to a lot of things. My mother, on the other hand, was frightened by all of it. Like she was frightened by our relationship, by how much uh, he shared with me about things he was interested in, psychology, sociology. My father was interested in, he read Aldous Huxley. So he was interested in taking an LSD. Mm -hmm. And my mother was like, oh no. (laughs) Did he ever wind up thinking he was a watermelon or... My father discovered Osho. I don't know if you've ever heard of Osho. I haven't. So Osho was known in the 70s as Bhagwan Rajanish. And he was a major Tantra teacher in the world. I wasn't into him then. And my father discovered him before me and tried to introduce me to his tapes and videos. 
which were very poor quality. They were VHS and they were like really, really poor quality. But my father, he found him fascinating and he wanted to go to India to, to learn about Tantra. But Osho didn't always call it that. So anyway, my mother said, if you go there, I, I'm, I'm divorcing you. And so he didn't go. So his closest, the closest he came was me. His daughter brought the teachings to him. And he just went, he, you know, he just was easy. He was like, yes, this is what I've been longing for. And his girlfriend that he had after uh, my mother's death, the next woman that he became very in love with, I'm sure benefited, even though she never came to class, I'm sure she benefited. They had a healthy sex life well into his 80s. Yeah. And people, by the way, my newest topic, I'm writing another book. It's called The Magic and Mastery, Sex and Happiness Over 60. And um, I'm writing about how it gets better. And my the topic that I speak about these days is sex and radical life extension, how important it is to keep getting those oxytocin, serotonin, dopamine, all those chemicals into the brain and the blood having that circulated in the blood and oxygenating the blood through sex is so key and so important. And it should be going on way into people's lives. And we have that misconception too. You know, you're going to turn 50 or 60 and your parts aren't going to work anymore. And my part, I'm like that good, that's over and things are drying up. No, that should never happen. If, if you were to sit down with, um, kind of a young couple, you know, who, um, you know, previously may have gone to a priest or a minister for their, you know, premarital counseling, which is, you know, still very popular. Um, what, what advice would you give them, um, you know, today, you know, in order to, to make sure that they are going to have a, a, a great sex life, um, you know, after, after marriage, like what, what would you sit down and, t- and tell that couple today? I would tell them to go to class as soon as possible to find a teacher in their area, wherever they are. Mostly there are teachers in the bigger cities, not so much in the smaller places, but to fly somewhere to go on a vacation where there's, where there's sacred sexuality being taught to learn everything they can and to learn really good communication skills, like to take a course in nonviolent communication or to uh, to take the forum, the landmark forum, or something something that's going to sustain their ability to communicate cleanly, clearly, and directly long after the honeymoon is over, and something that's also going to sustain their interest in each other. And they won't know how to do that. Most people don't. Most people uh, get bored with each other after maybe after the first kid is born or something. I mean, I see couples all the time, so. You know, either they either uh, they get bored with each other after the first child or the second child is born, or they're bored with each other by the time the children leave the house and are ready to go off to school or off to trade or whatever they're doing. Now they don't even know how they stood each other for this past 28, 38 years. So my follow-up question to that was, you know, fast forward, you know, 10 years, <laughs> that couple now has some kids. What, what advice do you give them to, you know, how they should be talking to their children about sex? Because you know, as, we, as we talked before, 
you know, we're not having the talk and most people aren't having the talk. Right. So what, what do we do for, for this next generation? You know, I've got three, you know, 15 year olds upstairs right now. I have, we have triplets. Um, oh know. my God. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we had sex at least once, but <laughs> what, what do we, you know, you know, what advice do you give that couple to say, okay, now this is how you should approach teaching, you know, teaching this to your kids so that, you know, they don't, you know, make the mistakes that we made in, in the past. Well, I love to tell parents to talk to their kids really openly about sex. By the way, your 15-year-olds already know more about sex than you do, probably. <laughs> They've forgotten more than I ever knew. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, I also tell them to find a teacher. There, Some of us do work with teenagers. I work with teenagers. Um, there are people out there who work with teenagers, and they do classes for parents and teens where they teach them how to talk to their teenagers very frankly. You want to talk to them really frankly. You want to talk to them about their emotions. You want to talk to them about um, their readiness. You want to talk to them about responsibility. You want to talk to them about the pleasure and the mastery of the body, like how awesome this body is and how, listen, if we weren't meant to feel pleasure, we would have been born into wood, metal, or glass. But we were born into skin, and skin is the, it's the best. So how do we honor that? How do we honor the fact that we have all these neural receptors in the skin, and how can we make that really something great? So, you know, it's funny. My father said to me, when I decided I was going to have sexual intercourse, I told my father, I was 18, and I, we were walking on the beach in Long Beach, and I said to my father, Dad, I think I'm going to have sex, or pop. I used to call him pop. I think I'm going to have sex, like sexual intercourse with someone. And he said to me, Laurie, it's not the best thing in the world, and it's not the worst thing in the world. It's a thing to be enjoyed. You should definitely enjoy it. And if you get pregnant, because that was the only thing to worry about then, if you get pregnant, you'll have to be responsible. Well, we went home and told my mother that he said that to me, and she threw every pot and pan <laughs> in the kitchen. Your dad sounds like somebody I'd like to go out and have a drink with. <laughs> yeah, he was pretty great in that department. He was really great. He was very. He was a very forward thinker in that department, and uh, he didn't have a lot of fear about things. So he just said things. So it's kind of like that, like, Hey kid, sex isn't the best thing in the world and it isn't the worst thing in the world. Let's talk about it. Let's make sure that when you have it, you're ready and that you actually enjoy it. Let's make sure that it's honorable, that if that it's good for your body, it feels good to you that you feel honored in the equation and let's make sure that the person you choose to partner up with feels the same way. I have friends, by the way, just saying this to you, Mike, I have friends who told their children to have sex in their house the first time that they would help them set it up so that it would be an honorable and a sacred experience. And then I have friends also who got an apartment for their high school kids so that they can be could be free and have sex in that apartment. So, I mean, I know some people who did some pretty radical things. Right. 
I'm not saying to go that far, but I, to make sure that it's honorable on the part of your child and another would be to me the biggest thing. And then to say, and to make sure that they have pleasure. There's different ways to touch. There's different ways to make eye contact. There's different ways to kiss. There's different things to say. You need to be in communication. And I would teach that. And I mean, I'm just conscious on time and I know you have an appointment to get to, but my, my, my typical last question is, um, is something like this, you know, you're, you're, you're an extremely accomplished person. Um, I mean, obviously a, a best-selling author, international best-selling author. Um, you're, you're very confident in yourself, but I'm sure there was a period of time in your life where you weren't feeling those things. Um, you know, when, when you were kind of a, a quite a different person than you are today. Mm. So if you had the ability to write a letter to your younger self, who was maybe not as um, confident as you are, or maybe, um, maybe even scared, um, or feeling kind of a, a different emotion other than confidence, what would you tell your younger person to reassure, you know, younger Lori um, that things were going to turn out okay? Like what, what, what would you put in that letter to me? I would say, uh, I know already, someone's asked me this and I, it just came to me spontaneously and I would still say the same thing. I would say to little Laurie that, uh, not to be afraid of her heart being broken, that she should continue to love and love and love and love and that her heart would expand every time it was broken, it would get bigger to love again. Okay. That's what I would say. Yeah. That's great. Uh, Great advice. Um, yeah. So remind me, the, the name of the book you're writing and when do you expect it to, to be released? Oh, okay. So yeah, it's, it's kind of, okay. So the first book is Sex and Happiness, The Tantric Laws of Intimacy. And the second book is The Magic and Mastery of Sex and Happiness After 60. And it's going to be now where I'm at in my life, like what's opened up for me, which so much more has opened up for me since I wrote the first book. Like I can't, I don't even know who that person was, you know, and I'm also co-writing it with a doctor who, who's going to be writing about all those chemicals uh, that I mentioned, dopamine and endorphins and oxytocin. He's going to be writing about why those are so important and why it's important for people over 60 to have their hormones checked, why it's really important that they stay juicy, how important it is for their health, for their, all these things that have to do with radical life extension. So uh, he's actually the person that gave me the idea we were at a festival together, which is about radical life extension. And he, when I came off the stage, because I talk about why sex is so important for people who want to really live long lives, long, healthy lives. When I came off the stage, he said to me, you know, more than any of these other experts, like there's a lot of scientists who know about nanobots and they know about genomes and they know about um, telomeres, all the stuff that could could increase the lifespan, but you know more about sex as it relates to them than anyone else that's appeared. And that's a topic of real human interest. And so he said, you should write the next book and I'm happy to co-author it with you. So when is it coming out? Oh, I don't know. It's, 
as fast as I can get it out. (laughs) (laughs) Right now it's in the, uh, it's still in the writing stages. I have a co-author that co-authored the other book with me and she and I are working as diligently as we can, given the crazy schedules we have. And he hasn't even started his part yet. So um, whatever. (laughs) It'll come out when it's ready. It's coming out. It is coming out. I don't know. I, it's 2018 now. I would say by 2019, it'll be on the market. Okay. Yeah. The other thing I want to just plug for you for a sure. second. I just created something. I haven't put it out there yet, but I'm putting it out there. I'm creating a multi-city event, like 10 or 12 cities in the U.S., with an event called What to Do About Me Too, or What to Do About Hashtag Me Too. Like how, because we didn't hit on that in this, in this talk, but it's really important what's happening in our world. It's really important that women have their voice. And by the same token, it's really important that all the men in the world not shrink up and get scared to death to, to relate to women. So uh, I'm creating an event that will take place in the late spring in many cities around the United States, I will simulcast from zoom and then I'll have facilitators in New York, Boston, Washington, DC, Miami, Columbus, New Orleans, Denver, San Francisco, Los Angeles. Uh, To me, that's a primary concern of mine that people get in alignment with like what really, what are boundaries? What is consent? And did you give consent (laughs) and what are men expected to do? So I just want to leave you with that because it's really important to me. No, maybe maybe that'll be a book too. And we're working. So when um, it sounds like the, the it's still in the planning phases right now, but where can people go to learn information, more information about that when it's, you know, when it's available, in other words, your, your website address is what? Yeah. My website address is butterflyworkshops.com. And people can find me a lot on Facebook. They can go to uh, Your Sex and Happiness. That's one of my business pages on Facebook. They can just look me up, Laurie Handlers. I mean, they'll fi- if they just Google me, they'll find lots and lots and lots of information. I mean, all over the place about my radio show, about my book, because I have a show also called Sex and Happiness. But the biggest thing coming across my desk now all the time is this big fear thing, this huge fear bubble called, it's bigger than AIDS. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like AIDS was in the eighties, the big fear, like this is really big. People losing their jobs, um, people, you know, pointing fingers, people uh, feeling disempowered and then finding their power. All of this is very big. There's a lot of like, uh, like the, the sanctity of our lives. All right. All right, Mike, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you very much and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. I will. This has been wonderful. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed my interview with Lori Handlers. I thought it was a fun conversation, certainly a topic that, you know, most people don't talk about every day, but probably should. Now, you can learn more about Lori at www.butterflyworkshops.com. I don't know why I always put the www in there. Most people know to do that automatically. 
So maybe I'll stop that at some point in time. I will tell you, you can learn more about me and my books. I've got six novels out at michaelcarlinauthor.com where you can learn more about Motel California, which is my new comedic mystery featuring podcaster Farrah Graham and her trusty sidekick Jimmy Doubts. You can buy those books on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold online. So, Mike Carlin, Foreign Corking a Story, wishing you all a great day.